Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Megan Boxall. How are you doing, Megan? I'm very well, thanks, John. Excellent. You've not written the cover feature this week? I've not, no. Somebody close to you has, though. <laughs> Half my name is in it. Half your name is in it. Yes, it's written by your father, who is uh, an asset manager. Yes, it uh, is. And uh, we're going to be talking about that in a minute. Uh, also, Harriet Clarford, how are you doing, Harriet? I'm fine, thank you. Excellent. And uh, you haven't written the cover feature, but you've written recently about a lot of the companies that are in it. So I have. Yeah. You, you are the Chris Boxall proxy. <laughs> Great, thanks. <laughs> On it. <laughs> Where shall we start? When well, we might as well just hang everything off this cover feature because it kind of is everything we want to talk about because there's been some results today which play into the same sort of theme, Blue Prism. I think. Was, let's talk about Blue Prism first. So they had results this week. They did. Blue Prism is a particularly successful AIM IPO and the, the cover feature is about AIM IPOs and how you pick the winners. Blue Prism is definitely an AIM IPO winner. It is. And I think we were just saying, um, Megan found that the shares are up 2,138% since the IPO in March 2016. Which is apparently better than Bitcoin. It is. If you go from the date of their IPO to today's date, then apparently it's higher than, than the returns you would, me- would have made from the asset, if it is an asset or whatever it is, that it's, is Bitcoin. It's, it's nothing. It's, it's nothing. It's speculative. Yeah. Spe- we, we've discussed this at that before. Exactly. If you had put money in Bitcoin, you wouldn't be able to get that money out of Bitcoin. And in Blue Prism, you could have taken your profit at any point over the last two and a bit years. But you wouldn't have wanted to because that share price has kept on rising. Continuing upwards, yeah. These results are good. Talk us through them. Yeah, they are. So, um, I think... Tell us what it does first. So... <laughs> I'll try. Um, so Blue Prism automates back office functions. Oh, how exciting. Yeah, it's that, it is actually quite <laughs> exciting. But um, I think maybe it sounds more exciting than when you see it in practice. Could it, it, they have sort of software robots. I think they call it a digital workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it, it's really aimed at quite administrative, um, repetitive tasks that could easily be taken over by a computer. What sort of things are we talking about? Um, I think, for example, the back office of an asset management firm, given we were just talking about asset management, um, so sort of administration, um, any kind of professional services firm, really, that has a lot of people working in tasks, working on tasks, which are daily, repetitive, computer-based. And presumably tasks that have in the past involved a lot of paperwork and, exactly. and drudgery. And there could be room for error as well. And obviously using automation would hopefully prevent... It's prevent- like validating insurance claims and stuff exactly. like that. Exactly. It's boring, boring stuff that if it's done by a robot, it's going to be a lot more efficient. Potentially more efficient. Yeah. I like yeah. bo- we like boring. As boring is brilliant. But but in terms of the actual share price of this company, it's not boring. Not at all. No. Um, is it making money? Yeah. I mean, this is you know big question about some of these AIM IPOs, which we will come on to. It's is not. That this is all, this is jam tomorrow. Yeah. Is that jam going to arrive? Well, according to estimates, <laughs> no profits are expected anytime soon. And I think their profits actually expanded from around, sorry, sorry, their losses actually expanded from around 3.1 million to 5.5 million, I want to say. Um, Those are pre-tax losses um, for the first half. But having said that, their revenues are up quite significantly. Their deal count is massive. So for the first half, it signed 559 software contracts, and that compares to 609 in total for the last financial year. So it's obviously the, the demand is obviously there. That includes a lot of new customers. It includes contracts with existing customers who like what they're getting from Blue Prism and they're buying more of it and buying different products. Um, so that all looks good. The momentum is there. And I think the reason the pre-tax losses are getting worse um, is because they're investing so much in sales and marketing. I suppose 
they kind of need to do that. You know, if they're going to keep that sales momentum, it comes at a cost. Um, they are expanding. They've massively increased their U.S. customer base. They've opened offices in Asia and Australia. But um, I think there's going to come a point when investors will say, actually, we want profits now. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I must admit, I'm a bit of a, a bit of an, a traditionalist when it comes to profits. I'd mm. like to see them. Um, when do we expect these profits to arrive? It's going to take a while. I mean, I think the, I think the forecasting period for most brokers is what to the 2020 financial year two or three years yeah nothing there yet um i think for a memory they are the losses are expected to improve towards the end of that forecasting period but i think they are just going to have to continue investing it's obviously not something they particularly want to predict themselves but i think for the time being people do really see it as momentum stock so yes the share price is still going people at the moment don't seem that phased by the fact that losses are getting worse are people looking at this as a potential acquisition target for example i mean i, I mean, I mean it'd be a you, very expensive acquisition target nevertheless tech companies have a lot of money to invest in these kind of things yeah, especially if true. it's a company that's, that's proving itself in a in this kind of space true and i mean alternatively I, it hasn't made any acquisitions recently but it could potentially acquire itself it, it could start acquiring companies itself as well Surely it doesn't have money for that if it's having to well it doesn't it would have marketing. to go back to the market and it did actually raise i think 40 million in january and it says it's putting those funds to work. It could potentially be an acquisition target. It, as I said, it would be expensive. I think it is actually trading at a slight discount in terms of its EV to sales at the moment, a very slight one compared to its sort of historic average. Mm. But still, it kind of depends. I suppose you'd have to think about what kind of company would acquire it. You know, would it... Microsoft. Something, something like Microsoft, yeah. Or could it be... Oracle, you know, but any, surely any... a company like that. I mean, yeah, it's great technology, but they is the problem not they do it programs. themselves? The competition is too tough. If it's mm. not acquired, what is the future for it? Is it going to be taking on a company like Microsoft? So is, is this, I mean, is this why we're sort of hesitant on shifting to buy here? I mean, we've had it on hold for a while. The share price has risen since the last result or the last update in January, and we've yeah. still got it on hold. I mean, are we just a bit worried that, that well, this is a bit jammed tomorrow and they're not going to arrive? Potentially. I think it's unpredictable. Also, this is in the context of other big UK software companies slightly toppling off their pedestals recently, like Sage, um, Microfocus, Microfocus, obviously. Yeah. Um, companies that were previously highly rated, and then there was a blip, and the shares just tumbled. And we saw that with Sophos, actually, as well, although they've kind of retraced since then. Um, and I mean, I suppose there is this feeling that, you know, how much longer can this last, particularly when there are no profits in sight, as mm. far as we can tell. Um, but we could be proven wrong and they could carry on soaring upwards, which would be great for them, but annoying for us because they're it, on a hold. Yeah, but we, have a, we do have a slightly different approach. We, 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 we try not to get caught up in the speculative mania yeah. uh, and we do try and underpin our, our recommendations with some kind of valuation argument. And, and that's it's difficult. the thing in, with Blue Prism. There's nothing to underpin it on apart from the revenue growth. But like you say, that, and as we've seen with other companies, revenue growth to that extent, can only continue for so long. Mm. And if it's not started yeah. being backed up by profits, investors are just going to get annoyed. I mean, another interesting company you've written about this week is Bango, which is another hot stock, and not so hot since we tipped it. But, but they've, I mean, they've had some decent news this week. I mean, They tell- have, yeah. So they've, Bango has had this relationship with Amazon for a while. So they work with Amazon in Japan. They launched with Bharti Airtel in India, which is a mobile network operator. It's basically mobile payments type exactly. stuff, isn't it? So Bango does direct carrier billing. It is a mobile payments business, but it specialises in direct carrier billing, which is basically 
allowing customers to pay for goods and services via their phone bill at the end of the month. Which is the future, we are led to believe by yeah. so many new stories. I mean, I didn't realise, but I'm doing it already with Spotify and my own phone bill. Like, I, People use it a lot more. I, I just don't think you really hear the phrase direct carry billing very often. But um, You used to, actually. Uh, it's kind right. of disappeared a bit. Maybe it's coming back. and Yeah. Maybe it needed a bit of a technological shift, more a shift in the number of people actually were prepared to transact with their mobile phones. I've seen, I've seen people buying pints with their phones recently, which I thought was quite yeah. I always, I buy everything with my phone. Do you? Yeah, Absolutely I do everything. with Apple Pay. Apple now, Pay. Yeah. Absolutely everything. I never, ever use my card apart from when I use my credit card. But I, I am so old you, school. You're more like I, I, I'm still a cat. I still like cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, that is quite old school. But I will say you're... Oh, oh cash. Oh. <laughs> I think you're much more, for me, you're much more likely to lose your card than you are your phone. So having everything in one place And it's place just easy as well. Convenient. Your phone's more yeah. likely to be in your pocket than your card is. I never, I never use my card. So, so Bango, <laughs> we think is in a... I mean, given what you two are saying, and you are the future, unlike me, who is a dinosaur. Uh, yeah. Bang, Bango, we still think is in a hot, hot spot. I mean, is it making money? Um, or is it the same sort of story as It, uh, it isn't making Prison? money yet, but it, um, we're ho- hoping it's going to get there pretty soon, actually. And it, um, it did have this good news this week in that it has set, it's, it struck a deal with Amazon in the UK. So it's going to allow customers of an unnamed mobile network operator to access Amazon Prime Video and to sort of pay for it via their monthly phone bills. For me, it seems like quite a sensible way to pay for things. And actually, it's good that this relationship with Amazon is developing and expanding Amazon being what it is, this massive tech behemoth. The problem I have with Bango, and as we've just said, we both use our phones, our iPhones, our Apple Pay, to pay for everything. What, where does Bango come into that? In terms of... Like, Apple seems to have got a large portion of the market now with its Apple Pay product. Everyone's got Apple, well, a lot of people have got Apple products. Yeah. So that you use Apple Pay. So how does Bango fit into that competition? So the way that it works is actually, in term, it, it works with app stores, so that, for example, I'll use Amazon Prime Video as the example. Say my mobile network operator has signed up with them. I'll be able to go onto video. It, it wouldn't necessarily be something that you pay for physically. So, for example, a pint or the tube or something. A, a like recurring that. relationship. It's a recurring relationship, yeah. yeah. And it, it, it's so they also have a relationship with Google Play, um, the, the Google App Store. And it's actually when you're buying stuff on your phone, right. sort of on the internet, um, it allows you to do that. Directly, so it's it's kind of the um, the intermediary, I suppose, between you and the app store, as opposed to, I mean, if you're talking about paying with Apple Pay for like a product in a shop, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's kind of where it differs. Although you actually obviously can pay pay with yeah. Apple Pay for the app store. So I think I think this is quite interesting in the context of what we were just saying about Blue Prism. You know, Amazon is a, yeah, pretty good at e-commerce, so mm. it, you know, but it's using an intermediary, a third party like Bango, to actually manage part of what it's doing. The same could be true in, the, in, in Blue Prism's context uh, in terms of someone like Microsoft who wants to get into a space and it's very good at what it does but just, just wants to accelerate where it, where it can get to mm. in a certain amount of time. I think it's quite interesting. So, yeah, big big tech companies yeah. are very good at tech but it doesn't rule them out of wanting to use someone else to do mm. stuff and I to think Bango stuff, yeah, is a good yeah. example of that. Yeah, I agree. And there is um, obviously more recently another company, Boku, listed... I remember when that listed because there was a bit of like, is this bad for Bango or is this good for Bango? Or is Bango? it good? Does it sort of legitimise its investment case and, it, you know, will it just draw more shareholders to this particular sector, which would be good news for Bango? So for the time being, I think that Boku and Bango do appear to validate each other's investment cases. We'll probably need a little bit of a longer track record for Boku to gauge. You know, potentially that's one that we could be very positive on in the future too. Um 
I think from an investor's perspective, it does look like Boku's listing has contributed to um, the decline in Bango's share price potentially. But um, I think longer term, it'll all come out in the wash and we'll see... That the Bango is actually yeah, yeah, a very exactly. strong company. And we've got the shares in that on a buy. Unlike we, we, we do, yeah, we're a very bit more exactly. I mean, it's interesting uh, that you say that, you know, in our in our view, the, the arrival of Boku to the market kind of validates the space. And we've actually, this takes us very neatly into the cover feature, uh, which is that uh, a lot of AIM IPOs, which Chris has written about this week, they seem to come in clusters. So we, we have a, a company that comes to the market in a particular sector. It's successful. Investors seem to like it. And then lots of other companies come, come through in the same space. And I guess what we're trying to do uh, at the IC is, is to try and work out whether uh, those kind of those sort of later arrivals are just a Me Too type, type IPO that isn't really any, worth investing in or whether actually they're like a Boku and potentially, uh, uh, you know, are, are, are an interesting investment opportunity. And there's a couple of... of, of of themes on AIM at the moment. There's been a lot of IPOs on AIM recently. Mm. I mean, it's, mm. it's incredible, really. Yeah, it's picking up again. There was a bit of a lull, and now there's now there's loads of IPOs. Absolutely, yeah, it's A lot of higher quality IPOs as well. I think AIM is approaching, I think it's a thousand companies, and it hasn't been near that for a while. Yeah, it used to be much bigger, then yeah. it all kind of... And then it came uh, off. Which was partly to do with the oil price yeah. uh, collapse, the, the resources troubles. But yeah, there, there, there's been a real flurry this year. And there's a couple of spaces we wanted to look at in particular. One is is legal, which mm-hmm. until not that long ago was not something you could invest in on the public markets. And the other is gaming, which we have talked about before, but there's been a, f- a couple of interesting IPOs there. Should we start with legal? Yep, sure. So, um, yeah, as you said, for a while, well, for a long time, you weren't able to invest in law firms. And then in 2015, a company called Gately listed. We actually have Gately on a buy tip now. It's more of a sort of traditional law firm structure. And I guess the reason that law firms were not really kind of the kind of companies that were suitable for the public markets is because actually the traditional model in law is partnerships. Exactly. Private partnerships. L- yeah, limited liability partnerships. And that is still the traditional model for a lot of really big law firms, so Magic Circle and Silver Circle firms in the UK. But um, then the Legal Services Act happened. I think it came into effect in 2011. And that allowed law firms to take on alternative business structures, which basically meant that they could accept third-party non-lawyer investment. And so going public was finally an option. It took a while for that to then come to fruition. Yeah. But it, now it's all, all hell has broken loose. Yeah, and it even took a while after the first IPO. So Gately joined AIM in 2015. And then in, I think it was last year, 2017, Gordon Dads joined. Then we had Keystone. Gordon Dads had some results though. Gordon Dads results were out today, yeah. So their first set of full year results since joining AIM last August. Any good? Um, yeah, they do look pretty good. Um, I mean, they're obviously a little um, confusing because their profits fell because of the uh, admission related IP, costs. IPO costs, that. yeah, yeah. But um, yep, top line growth. They say it actually doesn't do their real growth justice because they made five acquisitions last year, but they were t- most of them were towards the end of the year. So um, their actual growth is a lot stronger than what they've reported. Um, so yeah, Gordon Dads, that's a very acquisitive law firm. And they're, they joined AIM with a view to expanding by buying lots of other legal services firms and they already have started to do that because you'd imagine at the smaller end of the law market in the uk it's quite fragmented yeah and th- it is very fragmented and these companies by and large focus on the mid-market which is a very fragmented space and it's also a very crowded space and they i think one of the reasons why these law firms are probably joining aim is that they really want to raise their profiles particularly when they've got these massive magic circle firms to compete with as well mm. Obviously, looking at slightly different types of clients. With Gordon Dads, are investors starting to be a bit more 
knowing what to look for and and how to value a law firm because i remember when gately listed and i actually went to the gately ipo event and everyone was sort of think say asking the same question how do we value what do we do yeah how how, what why are you listing why what is the point and for them it was they were a real pioneer of it and and is it now a little bit easier to know what to look for? I think it's becoming increasingly easy. I mean, of course, one of the things you, you you can now do is compare their ratings with other law firms' ratings. Because as, as you said, when Gordon Dowds joined, there was only Gately. And it had, it had, that hadn't even been around for that long. I mean, the other thing is that, yes, they are all law firms and legal services firms, but they all are slightly different from each other. So Gordon Dowds is acquisitive, Keystone Law, which joined in November, and I think is actually in, within the, this feature, um, they, they're sort of virtual law firms. They're decentralised and they have this central back office, with, which is like a technology platform in London. But um, everyone works remotely. No, one get, no lawyer gets paid until Keystone's been paid. It's a sort of very modern, I guess, kind of gig economy approach to the law. Which is kind of what law is like in, y- in yeah, the UK, really. Are you, actually, I mean, again, going back to Blue Prism, sorry, just to go off on a bit of a tangent, you kind of can imagine that, that something like Keystone Law, if it's a platform, will be actually a potential customer for someone like Blue Prism, if it's, if it's back office processing. Exactly, exactly. And actually, I should say Gordon Dads also has a sort of back office platform in Cardiff, which helps it to integrate all these acquisitions that it's planning to make. Um, so you can see that could be the real future of these listed law firms. And I mean, Keystone, we also actually have on a buy. We think it's a really interesting, quite differentiated model. Um, The idea that, I mean, first of all, I think all of these firms are quite attractive to potential employees because now, as opposed to the sort of LLP model, potentially any employee can have a share in the company, can feel like they own the company at any level, whether they're sort of new starters or former partners, I suppose. I've worked in a partnership business before. um, And yeah, it is frustrating. Mm, it's frust- there is a frustration that you know, you're kind of doing the work to make a, f- mm. a select few and the hierarchy as well which I, isn't yeah. necessarily what everyone wants for a lot of people joining a law firm and or a big a big London a big city firm that, I worked that's in an accountant's, an accountant's yeah. practice mm. and, and that's great but if you are the kind of person who isn't necessarily a buy the book or a aiming for a partnership then it's not necessarily what you want and I think this helps to create more of a flat structure um, I know it's got a jargon you phrase but um, yeah, I think I don't know what that means. I think it means it's like the IT, Megan. It means that you know we're all kind of uh, we're all friends. Uh, uh, all friends. We're all equals. But there are f- there, there is a first among among equals. Is it? Of <laughs> but, uh, John's pointing to himself there for our listeners. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, beyond Keystone, we've had two other firms actually list. We've had Rosenblatt, which specialises in dispute resolution, and Exo, which does credit hire. Um, and, and law, it sort of combines the two. So I think within the future, um, Mr. Boxall slash your dad <laughs> <laughs> um, says that they're a kind of a combination of Ready, um, the insurance company, and, and a law firm, which again is quite interesting but quite different. So it does raise the question of how you compare it to the other law firms. Um, I think it's really fascinating that you mentioned insurance as well. I, re- I read a thing the other day, I cannot even remember where I read it, but it's like there are these industries like law, like accountancy, like like uh, like insurance that, that are just ripe for kind of some kind of techni- technological disruption. Mm. And this is, seems to be what we're looking at here. It is. It's, it's making law and, and in this case credit hire a lot more exciting and interesting and sort of underpinned by technology, I suppose, as well. And um, I mean, just in terms of floats that have just happened and ones to come... Um, Knights is expected to list tomorrow, I think. I, I, yeah. I um, think it might have already happened. It, I think it's, it's due to be admitted to AIM tomorrow. Um, 
Yeah. No, you're right. It, yeah, is, yeah. it is tomorrow. I'm getting, I'm getting but confused. It is, it's with, the, when the, when the magazine comes today. out. <laughs> and I'm looking at tomorrow's magazine. I just yeah. that. It says today in here. It's tomorrow. It's, it's tomorrow. tomorrow. It's, yeah. But um, it's, Semperal distortion. It's going to be the biggest um, legal AIM IPO so far. I think its market cap's going to be around 104 million on, on admission, which isn't huge, obviously. But um, So we're going to look at that next week. Yeah, we'll look at that next week. And I should say, on that note, I mean, for the time being, all of these companies, I think we think um, every time another one IPOs, it sort of serves to validate the other companies' uh, investment cases as well. Because, you know, it's bringing more shareholders, more analysts, more media coverage to the sector, which, you know, a year ago kind of didn't really exist on AIM. It's this, it is this real emerging, fast-growing mini-sector. But I guess we have to be careful we're not getting into a bubble territory that exactly. some of them might not be as good as each other. So, And then what happens when a much bigger one comes along? And there have been rumours, and actually the company has confirmed itself, um, DWF, which is a much bigger international law firm, is potentially considering a listing later this year, among other options. It didn't sort of say, yes, we're definitely going to. But um, I think one article, or a couple of articles have said its IPO could be worth a billion pounds, so... Mm. I mean, there, there is there is a warning from this this sector, which is that qu- you have Quindell, for example, mm. which which essentially was a law firm in some respects, was bought by a law firm, and and it, that did not end well. So I guess there is a th- yeah. there is, there is a caveat to all this. Exactly, and for the time being, you know, I think we've looked specifically at Keystone and Gately in terms of our coverage, and we think they look like really good companies. But um, and the others could be just as good. But um, yeah, it is a. It is a case of having to watch and make sure it doesn't become a bubble. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about gaming, because you wrote a sector focus on this recently, Megan, which we did talk about. Yeah. Um, and there have been, like Blue Prism, some extraordinary share prices. Yeah, price Frontier Rises in, in that sector, it's, subsector. Yeah, yeah, they've had an amazing time. And it's it's just really interesting that these games, it's it's I'm not great at the gaming thing, I know you are, but... The, the whole Which mean I am? You like I gaming. I do, but I'm not the, not the modern games. So, so, <laughs> so in, in the context of this feature, we, we are talking about a couple of uh, recent IPOs, which are Team 17 and Codemasters. I remember them well. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Codemasters. I, I bought my first computer game, which was made in 1986 <laughs> for the ZX Spectrum, and it was made by Codemasters. It was called Phantomus. It was one ninety nine. I I think that's a great story because it means that these companies they've developed with the rise in tech and they and the image that you showed me earlier. You don't like, you didn't like the look of that. I, well, I, I made the comment that it looked like it'd been drawn on on paint, <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't really imagine how it was a game. <laughs> oh, it was just so much fun. Yeah, that's but that's great. I assume their games no longer look like they've been drawn on paint. No, they're pretty good these mm. days. No, Co Masters. I, I as I say, it was. So uh, it was the it was like the hot the hot company. It was a couple of brothers, Dar- the Darling brothers. I don't know if they're still involved, but uh, my dad had forbade me from buying games for my ZX Spectrum. He, I don't know what he expected me to do with it, other than playing games, sort of writing essays or whatever. Um, it's good to see them still around. Team yeah, seven, that's team, great. Team Seventeen was another one. They have been around for ages. Yeah, they have, and okay. the founder is still involved in in Team Seventeen, and it just seems to grow nicely. And now there's an opportunity in the public markets where people seem to be interested in gaming again. Whether it is because Frontier Developments is doing so well, or because games like Fortnite are suddenly grabbing everyone's attention because they're just ridiculously profitable, mm. even though they're free. I mean that that blows my mind. They're, they're using that opportunity to come onto public markets, and that's really interesting. I, I, I think it's fascinating. You know, again, though, I'm sort of slightly, slightly suspicious that we've had a few good, comp- you know, good IPOs, good, you know, bit of success yeah. in, the, in the game market, and then companies that have been around for a really long time 
suddenly decide to, to it, kind of cash in. It, it is. It it, there's definitely that thing to be wary of. And there's, I mean, you can get it wrong as a gaming company as well. Frontier Development's got it wrong for a long time before suddenly getting it right and everyone went mad. And mm. uh, and to make mistakes like that, if I, I think those mistakes become much more obvious when you're a listed company and and you've got to answer to your shareholders. I suppose that the issue that sometimes that people sometimes raise about Frontier Developments is that, um, as far as I'm aware, their performance is kind of tied to games releases, right? Yeah, so it's quite, it fluctuates quite a mm-hmm. lot. And so we've looked quite a bit recently also at um, kind of video games outsources and companies that perhaps don't have such volatile cycles, mm-hmm. which are tied so much to games releases. Mm-hmm. So like Keyword Studios, I think, is one that's actually in the feature is a... Uh, as a sort of um, outsourcer, I suppose is the right word to describe them. Yeah, but they do um, te- they provide technical services to the video games industry. I guess I guess in some respects, it's almost like a platform. They're, they're, yeah. they're yeah. like a platform for for games developers. Mm. Well, with Keyword Studios, and I think it's Keyword Studios, which is the one that they they outsource sort of the niggles of the game. So they make people who work for Keyword Studios play the games to see if there are any glitches mm. uh, what a, wow. what a job and they do um, all sorts of things as well I mean they do such a random but interesting range of things so language translation for yeah. when video games are being taken abroad yeah kind of lo- I think they call it localization services just making sure that people will understand what's in the game yeah I, I, I mean the niggles thing's really interesting when it, so going back to the uh, the halcyon days of gaming in the night <laughs> late but there were a lot of niggles then oh god there were games you couldn't finish because <laughs> <laughs> there was something wrong with it there was a bug you could never get to the end <laughs> so frustrating oh my god <laughs> Yeah, That's those are the days. I mean, talking of gaming, I mean, let's. Uh, I'm gonna uh, let's sort of shift across a bit. It's not so much gaming, but virtual reality is something that is kind of related to game. You can see that as being perhaps the future of gaming. It's not quite there yet, but this yeah. is something I know you're looking at for next week's sector focus. Yeah, I am. but there is a company here uh, in uh, in Chris's piece, uh, VR Education, which is using it in a slightly different way. Yes, so um, VR Education. Um, I mean, the reason why it's in this piece is it actually IPO'd very recently. Um, and it's very early stage, so I think its revenues are still around half a million euros. Um, it's based in Ireland. But what it's doing is essentially bringing virtual reality to the classroom and to corporate training. The management team are so interesting. They talk very well. The CEO talks very sort of passionately about um, sort of having a whale flying through your classroom if you're in a biology lesson, for example, or you know, dropping a dinosaur onto someone's desk. Well, that, sounds, that sounds extremely educational. You know, it's real immersive <laughs> Wait, You're talking to a traditionalist here, an actual dinosaur. Yeah, no, 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 I didn't mean to agree with you. <laughs> no, you're not a dinosaur. Um, but yeah, it is, it is potentially... You can see how perhaps unlike um, consumer-facing virtual reality, which you know, I think is still getting there and it, it, it has the potential to be really exciting and interesting... This is actually something that really could stick. Um, you can see, you know, once educational organisations and schools and universities start investing in this kind of stuff, they'll they'll want to see it through. Mm. I assume. I, I can see actually. Do you know what? Funny enough, I'm thinking. Uh, I, brainstorming. Maybe maybe they can pay me some royalties. You know, so so biology lessons. Uh, there is a part of a, a GCSE biology course where you have to dissect something. My my little kids being. Uh, you want that little? They're not that little. They're they're vegetarians. And they really didn't want to do that. And, Fair enough. And I can see VR as being a, a very interesting alternative mm, yeah. for that kind of thing. And much nicer, really. Yeah, I, can, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, 
It, it just opens up so many opportunities and so many different subject areas. And as I said, they also do corporate training, so it's not just children at schools. Um, so you get the safety training, that sort of thing. Yeah, and- I think so. I, I mean, I, I guess the applications are endless once you sort of start getting, getting going with it. So the thing that potentially put them on the map was um, their work with the Apollo 11 VR educational experience. Um, that's been selected to be part of the launch collection for Facebook's Oculus Go. So headset. that was sending people to the moon? Yes. But via VR? Via so you VR. were Neil Armstrong? Yes. Or, or Buzz Aldrin. Or Buzz Aldrin. We've been in the news a lot for different reasons this week. Yeah. Um, so you're basically Neil Armstrong. And I think they worked with astronauts, with sort of space technicians, to make sure that it really felt as realistic as possible. So that, you know, you had the right things coming over the radio, you had the right things buttons flashing the right computer screens eating your food out of some kind of tube possibly yeah i mean it sounds pretty gross um but um you can see how that would really excite people about space and, and travel and that kind of thing you know things that just weren't possible even when when we were younger and now that happening i yeah. think VR, i think vr is actually very interesting i i do wonder with something like this that it's so, we're so early in the whole vr thing mm-hmm. I mean, computing power you know i, I talked about the, the zx spectrum which made games with 48k of machine mm-hmm. um and obviously the power of computing has has increased extraordinarily and vr is taking advantage of that but i, I do wonder whether we're and whether a little we have away the, from anything the infrastructure yeah. to actually support that kind of platform and mm-hmm. at the moment in the UK especially we just don't know people work hard enough to get their phones to work on the trains and yeah. I, I don't think it's quite there well this is I mean this is one of the issues and I'll, I'll look at this in a set to focus next week but I think on the one hand you've got the hardware developers the VR headset makers and on the other hand you've got the content developers so Companies, I suppose, like VR Education, who are providing this platform. The idea with VR Education as well is that they can then sell this platform to other people and they can create their own content using their underlying platform, depending on what kind of lesson you're teaching. Um, Schools don't have an enormous amount of money, not in this mm, country. So I presume they're looking internationally in terms of their customers. I imagine so, yeah, I think so. Um, But, you know, everything is in the testing stages as well with them. So I think it'll take a while before we really see who their main customers are going to be. But, um, you know, I think the headset developers and the content developers really need the other side to be very buoyant, to be a really high-quality market. Because otherwise, you might have really high-quality content, but the headset just isn't quite there yet. It's sort of lagging it so that... They're huge. You're not really... They are huge. Yeah, they are. They don't look comfortable. I no, mean, yeah. there's a whole VR thing in, like, yeah, I feel like I'm in space, but if you've got a really uncomfortable, massive headset on, then does that not ruin the experience? Mm-hmm. Potentially, yeah. Thank you, Harriet. I mean, while we're on the subject of VR, VR is something that is, is new for this World Cup. Yes. You can watch a football match in VR. I don't get it. What, which well, perspective are you taking? As we were taking? saying earlier, we're not sure how it would make us feel. Are you the ref? Are you the goalkeeper? I think if you, you were the, the ref, that'd be fun. <laughs> um, but anyway, you can watch games in VR. I don't have VR headsets. So if you were the German it. goalkeeper, it wouldn't be fun. Oh, well, it would be fun if you're an English fan watching <laughs> that game through the German <laughs> yeah. goalkeeper's headset. But there you go. And this week's Sector Focus is a, a nod to the great tournament that is taking place right now. Something that I must admit, I was uh, I was really willing to like not want to get into, but I'm loving it. Yeah, me too. I'm so excited. Are you loving it, Harriet? Uh, kind of. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of being made to love it. So, Are you loving it, Dom, over in the control room? Yeah, in parts, yeah. <laughs> not every game. Yeah, you're not even watching it tonight. No, I'm not. We can't talk to Dom, by the Fair weather fan. Right, anyway, so, so, so this, is, this isn't about the World Cup. This is more about... Sport and investing, uh, and actually, mm-hmm. it's kind of a difficult market. I mean, it's huge. It is. sport is huge. Yeah, 
but investors have never really, we've never really got to grips with it as an investment and this is what the point this is how i kind of wrote this sex focus because there is the commercial opportunity for, in sport and it, it's enormous everyone knows there is a lot of money to be made in sport you just have to look at the footballers and yeah they're the only ones making it and money. yeah and no one else is making any money in, from sport and that is seems odd when it's such a massive market which is growing so quickly but i mean there is a a reason to link this to the World Cup slightly because there are a lot of companies at the moment which are doing incredibly well out of the World Cup, the pub groups being the most obvious. Pubs are full at the moment because everyone's in the pubs watching the World Cups, taking up all their carbon dioxide. And Yeah, flat beer. <laughs> Nothing like it. <laughs> um, so we picked out some winners and, and, uh, and, and substitutes. Yes. I think it would be a... A polite way to describe them. Among listed companies that you can buy, who who we think might do well from the World Cup. Yeah. So I guess a couple of examples. Well, ITV is definitely going to do well from well from the World Cup because they are covering a lot of the games. They are, have said that their advertising revenues this year are going to be slightly skewed because they're making a lot more money from advertising in this quarter than they will do in in other quarters, in the rest of the quarters in the next four years. But it's something to be wary of with ITV because this year is going to be an anomaly, but I don't think that's a reason to overlook it for a long-term investment. I think it's in a really, really good position. It, it's clearly, it, it's got a lot of its own original content. It's not just having to rely on sports events like the World Cup to, to make money. Uh, and and it's a, in an interesting place at the moment, and it's not. It, it is being overlooked. So we like we like ITV anyway, yes. but the World Cup is a nice little bonus. But the World Cup is going to give it a bit of a boost. Okay, yes. um, let's let's move across. I mean, the, in broadcasting, actually, we we're more sceptical about a company like BT, for example, which yeah. invested heavily in sports. Yeah, and I think they're too racist. reliant on on their football coverage. And they spent too much money on it. Oh, they spent far too much money on it. It's ridiculous. But and the chief exec has gone. <laughs> He's on his way out. We yeah, talked about that on the podcast, have we? Have we not? No, I, I don't thought think you we talked have. about it with someone else. No. No, I don't think I did. I wasn't here when he left, and well, when he said he was going, that's we weren't surprised. No, I mean it's been coming we, for ages. We've been very critical of that. Yeah, company I think it's the, the right decision. They need to get him out, and they need a new strategy. And it, it may potentially in the future be a buying opportunity if a new chief executive comes in with a really fresh strategy. But it would need to be a bold strategy. They need to cut the dividend. They need to start from scratch, and they need to say, look, we've we, we've made some blunders with our spending, and we're going to clean it up. But that's going to be a bold move, and it is going to. I think there are going to be there's going to be more weakness in the share price because either they're going to have to keep spending ridiculous amounts of money, or they're going to have to cut the dividend. Both are going to send the share price down. I don't think they're ever going to be a significant content player. No, I I think the mistake they've made was actually buying it themselves. I think they need to go down a partnership route. Yeah, I completely agree, and I think that was the bit a bit of the problem with Gavin Patterson. I don't think he was the right man for what is almost a utility. He he was a bit. It was too glamorous. He was going. Did nice hair. <laughs> <laughs> he did have nice Gavin hair. Every person's hair should have its own Twitter account. Um, yeah, but it was it was all about that, like the forward facing things, the consumer things, and that wasn't right for what is almost a public service. Absolutely. Let's go into something which, which is a bit more uh, obviously sports related, and there is a little section here called nutrition, mm. and this is quite interesting. I'm very interested in nutrition. You did something at university around I sports studied science, sports science, you? yeah. So you are an expert. Who are the winners in sports science? I interestingly think GSK, but not for the reason that it's a winner in sports science, but for the reason that it is selling out 
of sports nutrition. I don't think sports nutrition is a market which has an awful lot of growth potential. I think it's too small. There is a company, actually, that's done very well at uh, sports nutrition, which is Glambia, which you haven't mentioned. Mm. Is it still going, Glambia? Is it still public? Is it, it's not been I bought? don't know if it's public, but I think it's still going. Yeah, no, no, it's an amazing company. Mm. I said that years ago. It's amazing. It's like protein, protein yeah, shakes, pro- that kind of stuff. Protein's huge, and people are people are very interested in nutrition at the moment. They're interested in, in their own personal health and, and cutting down on, on meat and things like that. And there is a market there, but it's so competitive. And for small companies like Science and Sport, as an example, Associated British Foods has just has recently bought a company called High Five. It's a very similar sort of situation. It's a, a small sports nutrition company. But the, the proportion of people who are interested in, in nutrition and eating that sort of way, I, I don't think it's big enough. I don't think it's growing fast enough with the amount of companies that are in the space. That said... The kind of political backdrop that we are in is, is one where the government is increasingly keen on, on telling us what we can and can't eat. You know, we have had the sugar tax, for example. And, uh, you know, I, I saw something this week about, you know, being able to sell sweets at the counter, which won't be good for WH Smiths. No. We won't be able to offer you that big bar of chocolate every time you buy a magazine. Or M&S. That is where oh. I spend most of my money. Percy Pigs at the counter. Percy Pigs. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, no, we, we, we're a Colin household ourselves. Oh, uh, I do like Colin. (laughs) Although saying that, I had an excellent Cecil the Caterpillar from Waitrose. (laughs) My goodness. Knockoffs Mm. knockoffs in the world of confectionery caterpillars. Where are we at? Anyway, so so basically the view on sport is probably not really that investable. To be honest, yeah, I, I don't I don't really think it's that investable. But I do think it's an interesting opportunity for companies. I mean we've seen the retailers do very well out of the athleisure. Not really sport. No, but it is. I, mean, I, I can't imagine many of JD Sports customers, for example, they are the, the king of kings of athleisure, mm. using their hundred pound trainers to actually do any sporting. No, I don't think they are. But I do think the trend of wanting to wear trainers more has come from a lot of people in the Western world now have suddenly decided that rather than being the nation that's known as a beast, we want to be known as the nation that's really really fit. And whether they are actually doing anything about that in practice. They've at least got the clothes for it. And JD Sports or Instagram, yeah. And Sports Direct and Superdry as well. They're doing well out of it. Okay. There you go. Retail then. Yeah. Select few retailers. Yeah. For people that think they should do sport but can't be bothered to do sport but just dress like they're doing sport. That is exactly (laughs) the point. So anyway, thank you, Megan, and thank you, Harriet. An enlightening discussion, lots of, uh, lots of ground covered there. Uh, lots more in the magazine this week. We've got a, a fair few pages of results. Algie's stock screen uh, is uh, big reliables this week. He actually looks at JD Sports mm. in detail. We, we still like this company in an in a almost infinite upgrade cycle. Yeah, I like um, JD Sports. There you go, such is the, uh, such is the strength of not doing sport but dressing like you're doing sport <laughs> lots of the personal finance fun section which they will talk about on their show tomorrow Mark Robinson has looked at uh, emerging markets and uh, industrials and how actually countries like China are in fact driving the green agenda uh, some interesting news stories this week which play into some of the things we talked about re- on recent podcasts Countrywide had a hideous profit warning this week shares were down almost 50% 
That's a big move from a profit warning. It's massive. Yeah. I, 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 you know, as we've said a number of times in this podcast and in the magazine, property market looks mm. to be running out of steam. There you go. Anyway, pick up the magazine this week. Win with new issues. How to pick Ames' best new companies. Lots of ideas in there, and lots of ideas about how you actually go about identifying companies that are uh, are worth buying post IPO. And we'll be back in next week. Uh, in the meantime, come on, England. It's coming home. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.